Now, we are, as I said, in the book of Matthew. We're going verse by verse through Matthew. We are today at chapter 3, and we're in the middle of this particular chapter. So it'll be helpful for us to to just remind ourselves of of what's going on, particularly because uh, we're talking about two weeks kind of uh, interval between our last two studies. We are looking at this ministry of John the Baptist. You probably heard John's name. John was a forerunner of God's promised Messiah. And John had a ministry that caught the attention of a lot of people in his day. And so there were people that, that made all sorts of claims about John or, or they wondered about John. Some people thought that John was actually the prophet Elijah. We know there was a prophecy that Elijah would come before the great day of the Lord, before the Messiah would come. And, and there were some that were convinced that John was Elijah, that he had come in, in this ministry. Uh, there were others that referred to him as, are you the prophet? Deuteronomy chapter 18 speaks of the prophet that would come. Essentially, it talks about the Messiah. So the people were wondering, are you the prophet? There were others that said, no, this is the Messiah himself, kind of differentiating the two there, though the scripture makes it clear they're the same, and said, are you him? And John, in each one of those instances, he would say, no, that's not me. I'm just the voice that is crying out in the wilderness that you need to prepare ye the way of the Lord. So look at Matthew 3.3. 3. We saw this. It says, this is the one who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord and make paths, make his uh, path straight. So John's ministry was one of preparation, and we're in the middle of it. We saw that a lot of people had been going out there. Today we're going to see Jesus himself will come. And this ministry of preparation, its purpose was to prepare people, prepare themselves for the coming of God's Messiah. And so I think we could say that this was John's message, though he may never have used these words. This was John's message, and it was this, that the king is coming, and it's your responsibility to remove anything from your life that would hinder his kingship in your life. That was John's message. And so when God does that work on your heart, and you're like, you know what? If he is going to be Lord of my life, then this thing's got to go. And that thing's got to go, and i got to stop doing this, and i got to stop going there. That's the idea of repentance. So John is calling people to repentance so that they might walk or be prepared for the coming of the king. John was calling them to prepare themselves by repenting of their sins and walking with a changed heart and a changed mind. And the demonstration of that repentance was, it's an easy one, relatively, what's his last name? Baptist, right, John the Baptist. The demonstration then of that repentance was going to be that people went out to be baptized. That's the message. And people responded to the message. People were drawn to what John had to say. Look at Matthew 3, verse 5. We looked at this last time. It says, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all of the region about the Jordan were going out to him and they were being baptized. Now that doesn't mean it says all, but it doesn't mean every single person But the idea is in grand numbers, great numbers, people are going out to respond to what John has to say. They're repenting. They're preparing their hearts for the coming of the king. And to demonstrate that, they're being baptized. Now, most of us, many of us, we have an idea of what that baptism would have looked like. Because in the Christian tradition, we we continue to celebrate and practice the rite of baptism. And it pretty much looks like what an adult baptism would look like. So some of us, we come from a background where babies are baptized or little children are baptized. But in the Christian tradition, baptism is for those that are old enough to know what they're doing, to go out there and essentially declare, I want to identify myself with the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
And if you've been around the Christian church for a while, you have an idea of what that looks like. Someone goes down into the water. Uh, someone's leading the ceremony of some sorts there. You know, they ask the person some questions. It becomes clear that the person wants to identify with Jesus, and they're taken, they're put under the water, and then they're raised back up. Well, that's pretty much exactly what John was doing. And he was taking people down into the river of the Jordan River, into the waters, probably asking them, you know, what's your intent? Why are you out here? And they would say something like, I, I want to prepare myself for the coming of the king. And he would say, well, then I baptize you. And he would baptize them, and they would come out of the water. The baptism that John celebrated, practiced, it was a demonstration, a demonstration, a sign of the cleansing from sin that each of these people were seeking as they readied themselves for the coming of the king. Now, we already saw verse 5, lots of people are coming out. Two of the groups of people that are coming out are introduced to us in verse 7. Look at verse 7 there in your Bibles. This is where our study will begin today. It says, now, when he saw that many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees were coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, in case you're not sure, to be called a brood of viper is not a positive thing. You know, John's not ex like ex showing that he's excited that they're there. He's calling them names. He calls them a brood of vipers. A brood is like the, the offspring, the children. He calls them children of snakes. Even in our day, if somebody called you a snake, they're not saying something positive about you. They're saying you're a cheat or a liar or a deceiver of something. You're such a snake or something like that. Many, well, never mind. So uh, he calls them a brood of vipers. He says that they are children of snakes. And I find it surprising. So if I'm John doing this ministry, and all of these people here, the Pharisees and the Sadducees start coming, and lots of other people, but these two groups of people in particular start coming, there's a part of me that's going to be thinking, this is awesome. Look, God is even doing a work amongst the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I would find myself being a little bit excited by that. But John instead, he rebukes them harshly. Look at verse 7. He said, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Who told you to come out here and to participate in this? Now, we've heard of the Pharisees. If, you've, if you're a believer, you read your Bible or whatever, you've heard of the Pharisees, you've heard of the Sadducees. Uh, and things like that. And you know, they usually have a negative connotation with them. What are you, some kind of Pharisee, we might say? But the Pharisees and the Sadducees, for those of you that aren't familiar, they were pretty much the ruling body of the Jews in the first century. And the two groups were very different from one another. So the Pharisees are on one side of the spectrum, very legalistic, very conservative, um, stuffy, if you will, not a lot of fun to be around here because always judging people. That's not the way, right way you should do it. And then over here on this side are the Sadducees. The Sadducees would be sort of the, the liberal theologian. Doesn't really believe anything in the Bible here because how can you really know? Sort of makes things up as they go uh, or whatever. But still thinks of themselves as religious. So you have these, these two sections, if you will, of ruling Judaism that are there, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they were very different, but they were alike in a number of things. One, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were more interested in keeping their traditions than they were the authority of the Word of God. And so they pretty much considered the two equal, but if push comes to shove, the traditions are more significant, more important than the actual Word of God. So that's one thing about these groups that they shared in common. Both groups believed essentially that righteousness came in the things that you did. You keep the law, you do what you're supposed to do, and that ultimately will decide whether or not 
you are righteous or not. And they were convinced that they were righteous. All right, so no debate about that. We are good. We don't really need God. We have everything down for us. And the last thing is, both groups were hypocritical. What I mean by that is they kept the outward observance of the law, but they forsook the spirit of the law. And so they were hypocrites. And so here are this group of people, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they're coming out to John looking to be baptized. And again, you think John would be excited that God is even doing a work amongst the hard-hearted Pharisees and Sadducees, but the reality is John's not excited at all. He rebukes them. And the reason why John rebukes them is because though they have come out to be baptized, John can see past sort of their outward acts. They can come out and do what everybody else is doing, but John either has spiritual insight or he's just simply observing what any one of us could perhaps observe as well. But John's able to look past all that and see, yeah, they're coming out to do the act, but there's been no change within these guys' hearts. And so, again, he calls them children of snakes, a brood of vipers. Notice verse 7, the second point. He challenges them to why they're really there. Who warned you to come out and to be here? And then finally, notice in verse 8, John demands of them that they bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And the idea is this, that these religious leaders, they might be out in the wilderness like everyone else, but John is immediately aware, aware of the attitude of their heart that is different from everybody else. And again, it might be heavenly insight or just simply taking notice of it, but John is convinced he knows that they have come out to appear to be anxious for the Messiah, but that there's no real repentance. There has been no real preparation for the king reigning in their lives. Now, I don't know why they went out there. I know that the reason that, the reason that they're out there is not right, I don't know what motivated them toward that. It could be that it was a sense of obligation. Everybody else is going out there. It's some religious thing. I guess we better go out there as well. Maybe that was it, a sense of obligation. Maybe it was so that everybody could see how religious they were, that they went out and did this ceremony and everybody could clap with them and acknowledge them. Or maybe it was to send John a subtle message that we're the folks in charge. Just keep that in mind, buddy. We'll let you do this little thing that you're doing here, but just so you know, we're the real leaders of the Jewish people. We don't really know what prompted them, but we do know that it wasn't that they might repent. Now, the text doesn't say this, but I wouldn't be surprised if these Pharisees and Sadducees come out to John with great pomp and circumstance. What I mean by that is big crowds, lots of noise, everybody's attention drawn on them, we're going out to be baptized. And maybe that's what John picked up on. And what's interesting is if that's indeed what happened, that's everything that this ceremony was not supposed to be. This wasn't about you. This wasn't about drawing attention to you, everyone thinking how great you are. This was about a people that were supposed to come readying themselves for the coming of the king. And John picks up on that. And so John confronts them on that. And I think in verse 9 that John anticipates their response. Look what he says in verse 9. He says, Don't presume to say to yourselves that we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. It seems to me that John anticipates them declaring something when he says, You brood of vipers, who warned you to come out and flee the wrath to come? It's as if he anticipates them saying, The wrath to come? Don't you know who we are? Yeah, I know we're out here repenting, but we're not really out here repenting. We're the Pharisees. We're the Sadducees. 
that we've come out here. Repentance is for people like the Gentiles. Repentance is for non-religious Jews. For those people over there, it's not for us. Well, you know what? That's not real repentance. That's a show. When you go to the ceremony, but your heart really isn't in it. These were not a broken people, but rather they were a people that were proud, a people that were arrogant, a people that were supremely confident in who they were and what they had done. And so John essentially says to them, stop trusting in your Jewish heritage. That's the idea there of children of Abraham. And please don't come out here, John says, as if you're doing God some kind of a favor. And so John says to them, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. You know, I think he's saying there that he's, please don't come here in your pride and think that you're something special but just because your great-great-great-great-grandfather was Abraham. And again, he adds, because God's able to raise up children for himself, for Abraham, from these very stones on the ground. Notice in verse 10, he goes on, he says, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, he says, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, I think that verse 10 is connected back to verse 8. So if you will, kind of read from 8 right down to 10, if you're kind of skipping past number 9 for a moment. Verse 8, you may recall, it said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, because even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. And every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, otherwise the tree is coming down. Now, if you were a farmer or somebody that had you know, a fruit tree that was growing in your backyard, and you noticed that no fruit was growing on that tree, you would try some things. And you would go over for a year or two, and maybe you would do whatever to make it a more fruitful tree. And you would water it, you'd prune it, you'd till the ground around it, you would do all these things. But if a couple of years goes by, or three years goes by, and there's still no fruit being produced from that tree, then you're going to cut the tree down, you're going to dig out that root, and you're going to put another one. Because that tree is just wasting soil. And so John says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, because even now, the axe is at the root of the tree. It makes it very clear that there is a judgment that is coming. That's the ministry of John the Baptist. Prepare yourself for the king is coming. Why? What's he coming for? To hang out with us? To be our pals? No, he's coming and he's going to bring judgment. And unless you repent, you're going to experience that judgment. That's why he's coming. And so John makes that very, very clear that the righteous anger of God is about to be poured out on all of those that remained in their sin. And John essentially is saying, look, you've been, you've been warned. And you'd be wise to heed that warning. And you know, I think there's a, there's a word for us here this morning that this isn't just something about some people that lived a long time ago. It's not just about the Pharisees and Sadducees. But I think it could apply to our lives as well. Because as I said a couple of weeks ago, John's message for those people is the same message for us. And that is that we need to ready ourselves for the king is coming. And so, I ask you, are you actively readying yourself for the reign of the king in your life? Are you prayerfully searching out your life of those things that might hinder his reign in your life? And then when God shows you something in your life that says, you know what, this is hindering you. You're not going to go very far with this chain wrapped around your leg. You've got to cut that thing loose. When God shows that to you, what do you do about that? Do you just think that was interesting? Think about it for a half hour or so on a Sunday morning? Or do you do something with it when you leave here? 
when you have your quiet time with the Lord and you're seeking the Lord and He reveals something in your life, what do you do with that? Do you just say, that was very interesting. Thank you, Lord, for showing that to me. Or do you do something about it? Do you pick up the phone? Do you get rid of something in your life? Whatever it may be. And so John here, I think the challenge that he has for them is the challenge that he has for us. I think the danger for any one of us, I don't know everybody in the room, but I think the danger for any one of us that have been in the faith for a little while is that we begin to get confident in our own righteousness. I think there's a particular danger for those young people that have grown up in the church. I didn't grow up in the church. I was about 17 years old, 16 years old, when I began to consider the things of Christ. And I gave my life to Christ when I was about 17. But I think there's a danger for kids that are at church every Sunday morning of their lives. And I think the danger becomes that they begin to think and they begin to become confident in the fact that, yeah, I'm going to heaven because I went to church every Sunday. Or, yeah, I'm going to heaven because I went to Calvary. I know there's other churches, but Calvary Chapel, they got it down. And so Calvary Chapel knows, so I'm going to go to heaven when I die. You are not going to heaven because you come to Calvary Chapel. And you're not going to heaven because you went to any church on a consistent basis on a Sunday morning. You're going to heaven if you have placed your trust in the work of Christ on the cross. And the fact that the Father accepted that sacrifice as evidenced by an empty grave. And so if you're content to come out here on a Sunday morning and perform a little religious ceremony as these Sadducees and Pharisees were, and yet remain unrepentant, unchanged in your life and in your thinking, then I encourage you, don't deceive yourself. You see, these Pharisees and Sadducees, they had deceived themselves. They had thought, I'll go out and do a few religious duties, and I guess I'll be good to go. And John is quick to call them out on that. A true change of heart is going to result in a change of action. Bear fruit, he says, in keeping with repentance. In another place in the Scriptures, it says this, you will know a tree by the fruit that it bears. Matthew chapter 7. True repentance will bear fruit of that repentance. And it will demonstrate itself in a life that is changed. And so John challenges these folks. Does John not want them to repent? Sure he does. But he challenges them with a very difficult message when he says to them, who warned you to come out here? Bear fruit in keeping with that repentance. The axe is laid to the tree. Judgment is coming. It's something that they needed to hear. And it's something that you and I, and certainly people that we're trying to minister to need to hear as well. Now look at verse 11, because I think verse 11 changes gears. So the first seven or so verses, you have all these people that are coming. You know, John asks him a question, what are you doing here? And he says, oh, I want to be ready for the king. I want to repent of my sin and all that. John says, fantastic. Well, then you know what? A symbolism of that repentance, we're gonna, and we're going to bring you out of the water and all that. Then you have the Sadducees and Pharisees coming. A little bit of tension here, speaking about judgment. But I think what happens in verse 11, we transition, John transitions back to that initial group of people that were coming, those that are coming there with the right motivations. And he says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now, a winnowing fork is sort of like a big pitchfork. Most of us know what a big pitchfork looks like. It's sort of like a big pitchfork, and it was used to sort out the wheat from the chaff at the threshing floor. 
And so the process would be, the farmer would go out, he would gather up all the grains of wheat, he would bring it to the threshing floor, then they would beat the wheat there on the, the flat rock, they would beat that, and what would happen is the grain of wheat would be separated from the chaff. The chaff is all of that other residue of the wheat stalk, you're not going to eat any of that stuff. And then it would all form a pile there where they had just beat it on the ground. Then they would take their pitchfork, their winnowing fork, shove it in there, throw it up into the air essentially, and the heavy wheat would drop down to the ground. The chaff would get caught up in the wind and blow a couple of feet, two, three feet away. And then they'd take a broom of some sort. They'd gather up all that chaff. They would take that and they would throw it in the fire and it would be gone. And then all of that wheat, and I said it earlier, I don't know what you do with that then, but they take all of that wheat and they make a cake or something, a bread. I, I, don't, know, I don't know what you do with that grain. It would be useless in my house uh, unless my wife stepped in. All right, so that's the idea, though. The point is this. There's going to be a separation. You see that? A separation is coming. The wheat is going to be separated from the chaff. That's the point of it. And the reason John knows that is, as he says in verse 11, he says, because there is one that is coming after me whose sandals I am not even worthy to carry. He is the one. The one that is coming after me. He will bring the divide. He will bring the judgment. He is the one, as he says, is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And I can say to you, I've read the rest of the story, uh, you probably have as well, his name is Jesus. And so John is a forerunner of Jesus Christ. And John knows that the people have been drawn by God to the place of repentance. In their heart, they have been drawn to that place where they wanted to be in a right relationship with God and they wanted to be ready for his Messiah. And now they're demonstrating that work that God had done by going out to uh, participate in this act of repentance. And no doubt they've committed themselves to, you know what, whatever fruit of that repentance I need to bear, I'm prepared to do that. And so it's to them that John declares that, you know what, what we're doing here is all looking forward to another one that's coming after me. So it's to these people that John says, you know what, this is all an act of preparation. A preparation, he says, for the real baptism, which will take place, look at verse 11, with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, I would suggest to you, I'll tell you, I should say, in my reading, that there is some discussion as to this idea of the baptism with the Holy Spirit and the baptism with fire. Is that the same baptism, just described by two different terms, baptism with the Holy Spirit, baptism with fire? Is it two separate baptisms that happens to a person? Baptism with the Holy Spirit, baptism with fire. Or is it two separate baptisms altogether happening to two separate people? The idea being that the baptism with the Holy Spirit would be for believers. The baptism with fire would be like judgment coming upon unbelievers. So there's some debate about it. And some would suggest, no, the fire refers to judgment. So we're talking about two separate people because there is no judgment for believers. So some will answer that. And, and you could look to scriptures and make a case for that. Others will say, no, you know what, what we're talking about at Pentecost, you see the Holy Spirit comes, and so too does the Spirit, as it were, tongues of fire, you know, that, that seem to come and rest upon the people. So there is some discussion about that. You could take whatever camp you want to settle in uh, and, and research that. The, the real reason why it's not that important for me to really go anywhere with it is because that's not the point of why it's even brought up here. So the point here isn't for us to prove whether it's for Holy Spirit or fire is for believers or for unbelievers the point here is simply that john is saying there's another one that's coming after me and he's reminding them you know what i am the one that's doing the preparation 
for the one that is coming after me. So John's point then is to direct these followers. All right, you've come out here, you've gotten down into the water, and now you're going to go on your way and bear fruit of that repentance. But as you go, be reminded, he says, that there's another one that's coming after me. Keep your eyes open. Be looking for him. So with that in mind, I think the transition into verse 13 makes a lot of sense. Because John said, be on the lookout for another. Now look at verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee. That's the other. And we don't know, did the Pharisees and Sadducees get out of the water and Jesus get in right after them? The text seems to show that because you go from verse 15 to verse, uh, verse 12 to verse 13. But this could have been weeks. It could have been months later. But here comes Jesus. He gets down into the water. Remember, Matthew's purpose is to reveal to us, to his readers, that Jesus is this king. So he's going to get right to it. I'm telling you about baptism, not because that happened, but because of Jesus. And then he went out to be baptized. And so he says this in verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John <coughs> to be baptized by him. John would have, excuse me, prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so for now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And so John consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Matthew's purpose is Jesus. He wants to show us Jesus. So he skips ahead in the story a little bit, it seems, to the part where Jesus comes out. And again, verse 13, then Jesus came from Galilee to be baptized. Now, the first time I think I've ever read, I ever read that, or maybe the first time I gave it some thought, I can't help but say, part of my thinking is, why did Jesus go get baptized? Like, I would have probably thought, like, what do you need to be baptized for? If this whole baptism thing is about repentance, and we know that Jesus was without sin as he lived here upon the earth, then what does he need to go out to repent of? And so I think it's alluded to, the answer is alluded to, and, and John, by the way, asks the same question. Look at verse 14. He says, John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized you, not you being baptized by me. But I think the answer to this question of why does Jesus go out to be baptized if this baptism is about repentance and he has nothing to be baptized of, what's he going out there for? And I think his answer, look at 15, he says, let it be so for now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And so John uh, consented. You see, I think Jesus is alluding to in that answer there that the baptism I'm about to undertake is a different sort of baptism than all of those other people have undertook. Just like our baptism is different from the people that John the Baptist was baptizing as well. Jesus wasn't being baptized to repent of his sins, as all the other people were, that came out there, those that came out with the right intentions. But rather, Jesus was coming out to identify. And what I mean by that is to identify the pe with the people that he would give his life for. So notice a couple of things. Look at verse 13 again. It says, Jesus came. Nobody compelled Jesus to go out there to be baptized in that way. In the same way, nobody compelled Jesus to leave his place in eternity and take on the role of a suffering servant on our behalf. But Jesus... He went forth and he came forth of his own accord. 
so that he could voluntarily lay down his life on behalf of others. And so Jesus here is not being baptized for his own sins, but if you will, he's being baptized for the sins of all of those that he came to save. He went out into the wilderness to identify with the people. So it's symbolic, but it's a symbol of a different thing. Baptism didn't bring repentance. The repentant heart, the baptism was a symbol of that. And in this way, Jesus, his baptism was symbolic of the fact that he was identifying with humanity. But I think there's a second reason that Jesus went out to be baptized, and that is that he could affirm the plan of God. That in his action, he was essentially saying, this is the will of God, and this is how the will of God is going to be accomplished. So again, a symbol. He did that in this way. He enters into the water. That would be symbolic of his dying, taking on human flesh and dying. When he was dead, he went under the water. He was buried, if you will. As Jesus went to the cross and died in our stead, he was buried then as a dead man. And then he comes out of the water because he rose again. And Jesus here in this act of going into the water, going under the water, coming out of the water, is essentially submitting himself to the process, the only process by which God's plan of salvation can be accomplished. G. Campbell Morgan, he said this, he said, it was a declaration that the only way in which sin could be dealt with and righteousness can be established was the identification of the sinless with the sinning. And so this act of baptism was Jesus' declaration that he was submitting himself to die for the penalty of sin and that he would rise again in victory, having conquered that sin. Baptism for the men and women that came out to John, that was a symbol of their repentance. But for Jesus, it was a symbol of the way in which he would fulfill the righteous claims of God against man's sin. And so here's John. John calls himself, refers to himself essentially as the unworthy one. We know that John was this great prophet, a remarkable guy, and all that, probably greater morally than any one of us you know, in this particular place. But when John comes into the presence of Jesus, what does he say of himself? He essentially says, I'm unworthy. He said, what are you doing out here? You should be baptizing me, not me baptizing you. Look at verse 16. Well, 15, Jesus said, no, you need to do this. And so he did. Then verse 16, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Lots of people went in the water to be baptized. Nobody else saw the Spirit descend on them or hear the heavens open or hear a voice say, This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. It's as if tangibly the Father is making it very clear that though this baptism was similar to all the others, this baptism was unlike all of the others that had taken place in those waters. And to set that apart, we see three things that takes place. Verse 16, it says, the Father parts the heavens. Then a little later it says, and then the Spirit descends like a dove. And then finally in verse 17, the, the voice is heard to say, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Do you notice that there? The Father confirms with His Spirit the ministry of the Son. Do you see the Trinity there? working in harmony with one another. And then the Father says that He is well pleased. You know, I think there's a variety of reasons why the Father could be pleased. One, simply with the life that Jesus had lived for the last 30 years. 
Just a quiet, steady, do what he had to do, righteous life without sin. The father is pleased with that. That's significant. Jesus didn't preach sermons. He didn't do miracles. He didn't raise people from the dead during that 30-year quiet time that we don't know really anything about. And yet he lived his life in such a way that God said he was pleased with his life. I think that's significant. But I think God is also pleased for a number of other reasons. Number one, he's pleased as Jesus goes into the water that he identifies himself with sinners. That pleased the heart of God. Because we know that God, he does what? He so loved the world, right? That he would give his only begotten son. So now here is his son essentially saying, yes, I submit to the plan of God. And I will give my life, I'll identify myself with sinners. I think he is pleased that his son, as it says in Philippians chapter 2, would take on the form of a servant, even to the point where he would go to the cross on behalf of other people. That pleases the heart of God. And finally, I think it pleases the heart of God that the plan of God for the redemption of man is now, if you will, in, uh, is fully in operation. You know, this begins the public ministry of Christ. And so the Father is pleased by this. This is what a different John said about John the Apostle. This was, excuse me, this was John the Apostle. This is what he said about Jesus. And the reason why I bring it up is there are some cult groups that will look at this passage and say that this is where Jesus became God. When he went to the water, he went under the water, and the Father says, this now, they add the word, this now is my son, that this is where he became God, they'll say. And so that's not true. Jesus was always God. Jesus will forever be God. It's important that you understand that. That's what the Scripture teaches. I want to show you what John the Apostle said about this event, essentially. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And you say, all right, well, who is this Word? Well, it keeps going. It says, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, his Creator. And without him, nothing was made that was made. He goes on, he says, and the Word became flesh. And dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the Son, the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And you might be thinking, wow, that's some guy, but who are we talking about? Look what it says in John 1.15. He says, and John, the other one, the Baptist, bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me. I'm not even worthy to undo your sandal. You see what the Scripture makes very clear? Jesus didn't become God. There wasn't ever a time where he wasn't God. He was forever uh, God, and he is creator of all things, it says in the passage there. So don't, don't be deceived if, by those that might come and suggest otherwise to you. Well, here we have now the public ministry of Christ's beginning. You know, I told you our subtitle for this topic um, of the book of Matthew as we make our way verse by verse through is falling in love with Jesus again. And essentially that comes out of my quiet times uh, about six months ago as I was just making my way through the book of, of Matthew, the Lord was very gracious. I, I sort of asked him to do it, and he was kind. He did. Um, but I said, Lord, you know what? I've read the Gospels every year for 30 years, it seems. I said, could just make it fresh, make it new. And, and you know, as I did, was reading through it, this, like I said, six months ago, the Lord just began to open my eyes to how remarkable Jesus is and look at him and be like, this guy is amazing. And if you will, falling in love with Jesus all over again. And so... Here we are now. The public ministry of Jesus has begun. So I'm really excited about jumping into chapter 4 and beyond as we just see Jesus 
interacting with people, talking with people, sharing the message of hope, lives being transformed. It's just really exciting. And so I look forward to that. But here, the public ministry begins with this baptism. This public act of identification with the people and submission to the will of God. And I think it's a foreshadowing of what the Apostle Paul would say about the ministry of Jesus. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians. He said that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He's identifying with the people and he's submitting himself to the plan of God to become one of us, to take on the penalty of sin for us so that we can be forgiven and cleansed of our sin. Now, that's sort of the study. Let me make a, a quick point. It's interesting that we're having a baptism here in a week over at the pool behind us here. And, and so it's interesting. We're talking about baptism and all of that when we're going to do one next week. And I, and I would encourage you, even if you're not getting baptized, I'd encourage you to come. It's a great time of fellowship and enjoyment with one another, but it's a great time to support those that are getting in the water. And sometimes folks will say, well, who's getting baptized? And what they're really saying is, you tell me who's getting baptized, I'll decide if I like them enough to come or whatever. And so I'm not telling you. I'll just say your brother and your sister is getting baptized. You should come. They would really appreciate you being there. And then, like, like we said, we're going to have a picnic and all that kind of stuff. But the believer's baptism is a phrase I want to use here. And the reason why I say that is because many of us, we grew up in a background. Many of us were probably baptized as babies and things like that. But the believer's baptism is when a person that is essentially an adult, or in their right mind if you want to think of it, kid, not in their right mind, as an adult, being able to simply say, you know what, I want to do something that will outwardly demonstrate what God has done inwardly. And so we at Calvary, we practice immersion baptism. And that is that we take a person, we put them fully under the water. And we do that by design and for a reason. Because we believe that immersion baptism is the perfect picture of what God has done in our lives. And that is that we, here we are, this guy, and now that we are in Christ, we have died to that old man. And so we're, we're proper people. Somebody dies, we bury him. And so we take that dead man, we bury them underneath that water, but we believe the Scripture says that in the place of the old man that a new person is raised and that we are to walk in the newness of a, that life. And so the picture is very simple. Here I am, I'm dying to my sin, and I'm rising up to walk as the new creation that I am in Christ. The Bible says this, if any man is in Christ, you know the verse, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, all things have become new. I love the verse in Romans, which is speaking about baptism. It says that we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. The old man has died, and the proper thing to do is to bury him or her under that water. And in its place, a new man has been raised with Christ to walk in the newness of life. And so if that describes you and you have never been baptized sort of as an adult follower of Christ or you know, a, an upper teen or something like that, then I'd encourage you, there's still time, we'll get you signed up, I'd encourage you to consider that for yourself. But I want to throw something else out there. People will say, but I was baptized as a baby. I was like three also, you know, I was three years old and I was baptized, some might say. And they say, should I get baptized again as an adult? And usually what I like to do is simply ask that person a question. And the question is very simple. Did you understand what you were doing when you were that infant? Did you understand what you were doing when you were that five-year-old, that six-year-old? 
And if the answer is, no, I had no idea. My mom brought me there. They put a nice little white dress on me or a little tuxedo on me or whatever, and next thing I know, I was soaking wet. You know, if you didn't understand it, then I would suggest to you that it would behoove you to publicly identify yourself with Christ, that you're a follower of Christ. Now, I'll throw this out there as well. Sometimes some people say, well, you know, I was baptized as a teenager. It was a youth group thing. It was awesome. We went to the beach. Everybody got baptized, and woo, it's so fun, you know, kind of thing. And I got goosebumps and all that kind of stuff. And then I'll say to them, well, did you understand what you were doing? And some of them will respond, not really, but everybody did it, and it was kind of cool. We took a big picture after, and they gave us shirts, you know, and, and all that kind of stuff. And that's cool, and I appreciate that, um, but I would just suggest to you, if you didn't know what you were doing and you were just doing it because the rest of the crowd was doing it, then you might want to consider getting baptized as well now that you're a little bit older and understand what it is you're doing. Well, let me make one final point. You're like, enough with the points. One final point, I promise, because these are questions that I'm asked, and so I, I'll, you, maybe you're thinking them as well. Some will ask this. I was baptized. I knew what I was doing. I was identifying with Christ. I was acknowledging my old man had died, a new man was raised to life, and I began to walk with Jesus for a little while, but then I drifted away. And I got right back into my old lifestyle, and I was doing all those things again, and I was there for five years, whatever it may be, but now I'm back with Jesus again. Would it be appropriate for me to get baptized again? Can I be rebaptized, so to speak? And the first time that I was confronted with this, I was actually I was in Israel. And in Israel, they do baptisms in the Jordan River, which is a dirty, slimy old river, um, which isn't very pleasant. But nonetheless, it's call of duty, so I got to jump in there with people. And it's about 35 degrees, I think, also. Um, so I was hallucinating in there after a little while. I was singing songs about, you know, whatever. So anyway, um, this lady, she was with us, and she said, uh, look, she said, I'm going to just tell you right now, I was baptized before as a believer. You did it. It was back at the swimming pool at your house. But... I'm in Israel. I may never get back to Israel again. I'm getting baptized in the Jordan. And I was like, well, I don't know if that's allowed. Like, I, I don't know. And she said, I don't care if it's allowed. I'm doing it. Or whatever. <laughs> All right, I'll go in with you. So we rebaptized her. We called it like, a, we, I compared it to like, if I'm married, but I'm renewing my vows kind of thing. So I justified it in my mind. But I never quite knew, is this even like allowed? Am I violating some law here? Or whatever. So we did it anyway because she scared me, quite frankly. <laughs> And so we did it. Now, that got me thinking about rebaptism, and is it even appropriate to do so? Um, now, you had a bad day, you know, you were driving down the street, someone cut you off, you cursed at them, you don't have to go get rebaptized or whatever. But you know, maybe you drifted from the Lord for a period of time, but now you're back with them. I think it might be appropriate to be rebaptized in a in a situation like that. And, and the reason why I do is because, again. I think baptism accomplishes the purpose of publicly declaring what God has done to those that are observing, watching. But I think that baptism also serves the purpose of declaring to yourself what God has done. So that the next time you are faced with that situation that's going to lead you down a path that you don't want to be down anymore, in your mind you can remember back to that day, it was just a little while ago, where you went under that water and you were raised back up in newness of life to walk with Christ. And I think in that sense, it's a declaration to you. And you know what? I think if you're at that place where you think, I need to make that declaration again to those around me and to myself, then I think it might be appropriate in that instance. I would strongly encourage you to pray about it and see what the Lord kind of directs. And if you want, we can talk about it a little bit further here. But we're going to do that next week. And so 
as we do that next week, I'd encourage you, come speak with us. Call me up during the week or whatever at the office, and we'll, we'll speak with you through that particular process. Okay? That sound good? That'll be next week. We're looking forward to it. Let's go before the Lord. Then we're going to invite Travis and Allegra back up uh, to finish us out on worship. Father, we do indeed thank you, Lord, that we can be called to your Son. I think about this idea, of this concept of publicly identifying ourselves with Christ. For us to say, you know, I was a sinner, that the wages of that sin was a certain death, and yet one came on my behalf and died in my place, Lord. For us to be able to publicly declare that truth is magnificent, Lord. Remarkable. And Lord, we delight in that truth. And so, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity next week. And I pray for those that are considering it, Lord. Just work in their hearts, make it clear to them what uh, you would have them to do. But Lord, today, as we consider this passage of you going down into the waters, Lord, not in any way to repent of any sins that you may have done, but to identify with those that you would come and give your life for. Lord, again, we just rejoice in that truth. How great a love for us that the Father has shown for us that you would send forth your Son and give your life on our behalf. So, Father, fill our hearts with a sense of the wonder and joy of that truth. And bless us, Lord, now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.